Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is the award-winning author and poet, Selina Godden. Now, I don't think it's hyperbole to say Selina Godden is one of the greatest English poets alive today. At least the Royal Society of Literature thinks so, as they elected her a fellowship in 2020. For me, though, she's a performance poet. Yes, she has collections of her poetry and appears in anthologies, but it's her albums that are the real highlight. I think poetry at its best is when it's heard and not read. And Selena is a great read, but wows in a live setting. And I hope after hearing this interview, you go and check out her live dates, because she really is someone to seek out and see. For this interview, though, we do discuss her novel writing as well as her poetry after her debut novel, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, came out to great acclaim in 2021. And in 2022, won an Indie Book Award and People's Book Prize. It's just a very good book. Uh, So whether you're a novelist, poet, or just a fan of Selena, this is a great conversation to listen to. Now, it was recorded back in the summer of 2022, so the weather is quite different when we discuss it, but sadly, the politics is still depressingly similar. Anyway, enough waffle. Let's have a jingle, then on to the interview. And I'm here with Selena Godden. Selena, hello. Hello, Tom. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you here. And my first question, as always, is what are we drinking? I'm drinking a cup of tea. What are you drinking? I am also joining you with a cup of tea. Now, I understand you don't just have any old tea. You have a bit of a tea cocktail. Will you tell our listeners? Oh, I do. I'm t- I like to mix my tea bags up and I have a Yorkshire tea mixed with a chai, um, right. which makes it more tea-y. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Very tasty. And what uh, kind this... of tea you got? I need to know now. I've gone for a standard Tetley. My my wife is very particular, and so I make sure we always have Tetleys in the house. To the point now that last Christmas I got her a big like catering bag of Tetleys, <laughs> and we're still working our way through. She thought, well, that would only last a, a month, but we're here like mid to late August, and we're still going strong. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I yeah. So I'm not really a tea drinker, but this show is making me a tea drinker because I'm just. Interviewing so many people, it's got to be a cup of tea. Yeah, a cup of Um, tea, yeah. The slow burn caffeine release. I've always been a coffee drinker before, but I'm appreciating, rather than the hit of caffeine, it's that slow release throughout the day, and I'm appreciating that more. So this is your go-to drink when you're writing? Yeah, it is, and this is my cup. As you'll see, it's huge, this huge white cup. Yeah, and this is like my cup. No one else is allowed to drink from it. Yes. It's a huge, great big mug. And um, yeah. And where I'm speaking to you, uh, you have a fine uh, series of books behind you. Is this your writing spot in the house? This is actually my little writing room. Yeah. This is where I live. This is where I am most of the day, actually. And this is where I wrote my books. And I'm at the desk. That's the desk that's in the book. Yeah. Nice. And are you a laptop writer, desktop writer, a notepad writer? How, how do you like to jot out your ideas? Oh, I don't think there's one answer to that. I am a walking, talking writer. Yeah. And I, it's called composing on the lips, to compose on the lips. Isn't that yeah. sure? I didn't ever hear that before, but I looked it up. And yeah, so writing and re- recording into my phone Mm. and typing into my phone I kind of like that you can probably hear quite a lot of rhythm in my writing um I also write by hand I like Mm -hmm. to sit and just scribble away in a notebook got lots of notebooks never throw any notebooks out and then yeah and then sit there and 
type all that into the computer, the audio and the penciled notes. And yeah. it's amazing, actually, isn't it? When you're writing, you can write just to scribble like Chinese noodles. And that's yeah. like a whole chapter. But, you know, <laughs> it's not an order for your takeaway. <laughs> yeah. I suppose like sometimes it's just if it can take you to that place. That's brilliant. But I do know writers where sometimes they look at a word or a phrase and just go, no idea. I have no idea. Yeah, that happens too. That does happen. Yeah. Um, So do you have a structured writing day where you wake up and it's going through the notes? Or do you go, actually, I've got a load of notes now and it's suddenly you realize you have a bunch that you have to sit down and write up. How is it structured? Um, Let me see. Okay, so first things, I like to get up really early in the morning. I'm a very early morning writer. This developed when I was writing Springfield Road in my 30s, and I still don't even need a alarm clock or anything. Okay. I naturally wake up at four, even if I don't have oh, to wow. or want to, and I sort of sit there. And sometimes I'll get up for an hour and read, or if I haven't got a deadline or something I'm working on, or you know something urgent. But generally, I'll make a massive cup of tea and sit here and watch the sunrise and watch the sky get lighter. I love that time of day for writing. I find it really inspiring. It's like a new chance. It's like a new fresh mm. page. It's like a fresh new day to try and get something better or write something better that you did the day before. Yes. I think that's probably why so much of my work has so much hope in it. Because I feel very hopeful watching the sunrise. Obviously, by five in the afternoon, you know, you've been on Twitter and the world's all yeah. the and you're like, what's that point? <laughs> and then you reach for the gin. But at four or five in the morning, it's all beautiful and hopeful yeah. and full of possibilities. I don't think there's a strict sort of rule. There are days that, are, you know, your, your eye has to be on the editing jobs. There are days when you'll just go back over what you've written over and over again trying to remember and find like a path of breadcrumbs and usually by going back to the beginning back to page one you'll go yeah. oh I, yeah and you could pick up some days you'll spend ages just obsessing over one paragraph it's crazy when that happens too and then other days you'll merrily go off in some other completely new ideas and that's really exciting and then it's four in the afternoon and you haven't even had anything to eat or gone for a pee and and you know and your and your husband or partner comes home and is like puts a sandwich next to you. Yeah. you don't even say yeah. thank you and you just eat mm. it like an animal and carry on writing till eight. Those days are intense, but you get a hell of a lot done. So it kind of changes with with projects and timings and what I'm doing. Yeah. I think I like writing thinking no one's looking. Yeah. And is it a prose project you're working on at the moment or a poetry one or is there a couple? There's a couple of books at the moment. So I'm working on a new novel, working on a new poetry collection. I've been fiddling with some short stories, which I'm not supposed to be doing. And I've been writing songs, which I'm not supposed to be doing. And also looking at memoir. I'm doing a little bit of everything at the moment. I'm in this lovely place of kind of playing with just basically new work, new ideas, new projects. Because Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death took over my life the last three years or so. So it's nice to sort of have that that lovely soft time in August before it's crazy September and spiders and orange and Halloween when it's all lovely. And I love this time of year when you just sit down and take time to make pots of tea. It's not quite back to term time, not quite time for a new pencil case. It's that last little end of that August feeling. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think this year where we've had such severe heat waves and it's now got back to a still warm but comfortable heat 
that it's not so oppressive that you can actually enjoy the outside, enjoy seeing people. A little easier to focus, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love this. I love this time of year. I always have making lists and making dreams and thinking, mm. what, what do I want to do next? What do yeah. I have to do next? What do I need to do next? Yeah. It's not always the same thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> and like you were saying there, sort of like writing short stories when you shouldn't be and songs <laughs> when you shouldn't be. But it's just when the creative energy is high and you're sort of like working on all these projects, sometimes you need a break from what you need to be working on to do something that you just want to do for fun. And it's yeah. less pressure. And like you say, no one's looking at it. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, exactly mm. that. Exactly that, Tom. Yeah. That kind of feeling like, to be honest with you, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death was a massive thing that I was writing that I wasn't supposed to be working on. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher in place. At some points, I wasn't even sure I'd ever let anyone read it. It was just something that I wanted to complete. So, yeah, so that feeling of just, it was like my, what do they call it, like a pet project. It was yeah. just something I wanted to, that I was working on. I was just collecting all these deaths and all these stories yeah and so how long were you working on that how long was the gestation of that as a pepper? yeah 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 I've got an old notebook that's um 2011 2012 okay so like little scribbled notes and ideas for characters and and collecting real-time stories of you know injustice and huge things that were happening politically and then also strange stories of near-death experiences and people that survived and things like that. Not all of it went into the book. The book could have been like so, all the stuff I'd collected, but I was really adamant that it had to be quite short mm. because life is short and death is such a big, scary subject. Mm. I didn't want the book to be heavy, like in yeah. someone's pocket, like it's yeah. heavy in your head as it is. Yeah. And so obviously that's had great acclaim and success and congratulations on the Indie Award that you got. Um, what is going on? I don't, it's I don't it's know amazing. amazing. I, it's really resonated with people and it's really good. And obviously you're now working on a second prose project. Or is this your second project or is there like one in between? I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say, but this is a novel. And there won't be oh, any okay. poetry in it. So whereas in Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, we had some bits of, well, I played with lots of forms, didn't I? And poetry yes. and song and duologue and plays and, and script and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, no, this one is a straight up, no messing around, bookie book. Okay. <laughs> For a little better way of putting it. Well, yeah. I never asked titles, I never asked plots, I never asked characters. So we should be all right by any kind of okay. publisher agent sort of thing. And also, I always want this to be a snapshot in history. So I want it to be that we're talking around the outskirts of it. We're talking about the behind the scenes. And then yeah. once it's actually announced, once it's actually released, people can go back and it's almost like a DVD commentary. Yeah. Like, oh wow this is what they were thinking when they actually wrote it rather than you having to think back wait what was I thinking when I wrote this? <laughs> so, so we're, we're, we're catching it live real time so this is your first proper like you say novel novel uh, yeah Springfield wrote the memoir although yeah. it was it's a memoir but that was all prose obviously mm. so it's not my first time writing like all a in narrative. prose and, yeah that's what I'm trying to say sorry yeah sorry 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 <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. But it's still experimental and I'm just getting so much joy from it because it's the complete opposite to Mrs. Death. I asked quite a lot of myself writing that book and I didn't realise or know people would read it. I didn't know yeah. people would read it. So also I now I know that people, lots of people have read it. I asked a lot of the readers. It's quite a big thing to ask someone to read. So 
I'm really enjoying this one. It's light and joyful and just the other side of me. And has it been like a long gestating project as well that you've now just been able to really dive in on? Or was it people were asking, okay, you've written Mrs. Death what next? And you're like, oh, I've got to come up with something. Oh, no, not at all. Honestly, this has also been bubbling away for a long time. Okay, cool. Uh, it's, yeah, I'm a lot, I'm, I, yeah, I do that. I make things. Yeah, so this has been a long thing that I've been developing and working on to, um, you know, alongside Mrs. Death. Yeah. And I guess the thing I'd like to ask a lot of writers when it comes to the planning side of it, is was it more of a scenario, a character, or a world that you wish to exhibit that really was the driving force when you were developing the idea? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's a combination of being led by a character okay. and exploring that world. Yeah. Okay. And is it a character that you feel? Was like strongly developed when you actually started to sit down, or are you discovering a lot of the character through the writing? Yeah, I'm discovering a lot as I'm writing about the characters' friendship group and enemies, and I'm loving developing that and exploring that. Much as I did with Mrs. Death, what does she eat? She eats eggs, and so I'm really enjoying that. Yeah. yeah. And would you say it's a character that you feel? Yeah, is it close to you or yeah, close to the people that you know, or have you had to like research a lot, either psychologically or culturally, to make sure it's it feels an authentic character? Very much. I'm obsessed at the moment. Obsessed is a strong word, but I'm, this is such a weird story. Please don't okay. think I'm a weirdo. Well, I am a weirdo. Oh yeah, so. I was going to say I'm not <laughs> accepting that. Sorry. Mix your teas. You established yourself very early. Somebody wrote me a letter from Taiwan. And I thought, where is Taiwan? And who would have possibly heard of my poetry in Taiwan? So then I Googled their address and then I started getting really into the history of that country of Taiwan and what they eat and all of that. So some of my book for this, just because of that, is now set in that area and in that history because I just found it really fascinating. And yes, I've been doing loads of reading and looking up things and pictures and yeah, yeah. So it's funny, isn't it? When you're writing something, it takes you down these roads and down these paths yeah. of all these strange Google searches. <laughs> and I know this is going to sound like, yeah, but I've been really enjoying getting older. I recently turned 50 and just slowing down a little bit, noticing my breath and just looking at nature and growing flowers and life and nature and all of that. And where, whereas Mrs. Death took me to walking around graveyards and feeling very much that, this feeling in this book is much more on the other side. And so I've been really enjoying that. Yeah. And <laughs> looking at a narrative rather than exploring a collection of ideas, because I guess with Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, seen through the prism of a narrator collecting these stories throughout with this narrative have you had to map things out just to make sure it's a coherent whole or is it still a stylistically sort of snapshots across a life oh no this no yeah because in mrs death mrs death there are mrs death is showing wolf the mm. the other narrator the young writer yeah. all these different lives so mm. we have all these different feelings and flavors and we're jumping through history and time and different 
injustices and silenced death. And, yeah. oh my, so this one is a different feel. It's still trippy. It's still experimental because that's where my head is at. So it's still going to have that surreal quality to it. But it's not so, it's not coming in at you from those different angles as well. Okay. It's, it's a one voice thing. Okay. Roughly, at the moment it is anyway. Yeah. (laughs) That might change. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess with this experimental, slightly trippy, do you plan a narrative at all? Or is it very much you sit down and you just write and you just sort of see where it takes you? And then in the redrafting, just establish the beginning, middle and end. There's actually a big story that I'm trying to tell. Okay, cool. A very big story. But it's very difficult to uh, put that all in one book. So, yeah, so I've got the big story and then it's just working out how to fragment that into doing each each character and each angle of that story justice. I have got a really lovely idea, but just like with Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, there was one point where everyone was going to die in the end. It's going to be okay. completely nihilistic. And then I went to Ireland and stayed in this tower and discovered more about the character and walks being wolf in the tower in this amazing place and just felt very differently about how I wanted that book in particular to end. And I'm sure that will happen again, that I will take myself off to where this lead character stays. And from there, it will all make sense to me. I'm looking for that at the moment. Yeah. At the moment, I've got everyone dying in a war. Well, not dying, but in battle. And so I kind of, you know, they're being like this. And I'm not really sure that I want to send that like a black mm. snowball into the world. Yeah. So I want to yeah, find a bit more. But, but that will come. I find traveling. I find leaving this room that you're looking at now yeah. really helps. And going and facing my fears and facing my silence. I really quite like my own company. I like my writer selena more than performing selena mm. to be honest and i'm much more comfortable in my writing mode than i am in my raw let's all drink rum mode <laughs> yeah it's the um receive rather than project elements of personality where you're just absorbing the things around you yeah and we've definitely had guests on the show where they've traveled and just getting that evocative sense of place and the smells and the sounds and it. it's just it's so different from your study <laughs> it's yeah. just and you can imagine certain things but if it's a place that you've never been it's yeah. not going to feel real to people who are reading it who actually live there and you can really tell we've had a guest on the show who's written about bristol and when i first got sent the book i was like ready to get my critical brain on and i was like no this is someone who's lived in bristol and he had you can tell and it is that thing of you don't want to cheat the reader. And I think that, yeah, travel can be fantastic. Yeah, it's, that's the magic stuff, isn't it? Just going and just being on your own and it's very indulgent. But it's like you have to dislocate yourself from the familiar. You have to get a bit sad and a bit lonely as well. A bit, where's my morning cuddle? Where's my, you know, and you sort of get bits. But in that, you find this other way of writing and it's, it's really lovely to come home with a big fat finish thing and you just feel really like you can actually relax if for maybe yeah. a day and then you get all worried about that it's rubbish and then you go back to writing again. <laughs> well, it's a, yeah, it's a privilege to travel. It's a privilege mm. to do these things. I don't have children. I did do this on purpose to have yeah. that freedom. I, I really protect it, that freedom and protect yeah. the time to write so that I can stand half a chance of being a halfway decent writer by the time I'm 70, you know? 
I also like my freedom, sleep, and disposable income, so I'm also not a, a parent. But yeah, I mean, I, I, have had, I have had sort of feelings of wanting to be a mother, but they normally end with, I would get as far as thinking how cute a little mini Selena would be, so it's like a vanity project, yeah. and then I'd get as far as giving them a really cool name, and then I would just go, you're basically writing a character, and I just write a short <laughs> yeah. story about this character and mm. get it out of my system like that. Yeah, there are many ways to leave a legacy. Yeah, and one that you don't have to fear for health problems. You don't have to fear about the state of society for. You don't have to worry about whether they're going to get a good job or be able to house themselves and feed themselves and have a family of their own. You don't have to worry about that with a character. You know, uh, you can scream at you from the book. Why isn't there nicer food in the fridge? Oh, and yeah, be very demanding. <laughs> be very demanding of your time. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that freedom. Return to the. The ideas of travel and traveling to enhance your work. I, I feel that's doing service to the reader. I don't think it's indulgent, picking up on a word you said earlier. No, I love that though. And just listening to conversations, listening, I just, uh, this weekend, I was in Bradford and doing a gig there, poetry gig, just listening to the change of accents and the mm. feeling and, the, and walking around the town. And, and the weekend before that, I was in Edinburgh. So it doesn't even have to be somewhere with a palm tree, just yeah. not this room can be amazing <laughs> yeah. and also i would say yes from london to bradford to edinburgh culturally it's divided by a, a similar language but like you say the accents yeah, and then are so Cornwall different. the weekend before that that's one end of the country to the other and yeah i think i've always loved that part of performing and touring the meeting people all over the country and seeing how certain poems land so differently yeah. in different towns in different yeah. vibes it's really interesting there's, it's almost like there's a geography of Greece, especially if you're talking yeah. about death and grief mm. and sorrow. And we should talk about your poetry and performance. It's what you're known for. But yeah. it's interesting what you said earlier, how you prefer your internal writing mode to your performance mode. But yeah. performance is so integral, I think, to poetry, especially in the modern age, mm. that the development of poems can sometimes be created on stage. And I was just wondering, from having an initial concept of a poet to actually performing it, do you like to rehearse it a lot before and getting it out in public or do you prefer to get a rough form out in public and like you say see how it lands mm. and then maybe revise the words in it later okay there's lots to unpack there in that question okay first of all just want to say just in case when I said I prefer my, my writer person to my performer I mean that I'm just more chilled when I'm writing and there's just a lot of anxiety. I get very nervous still. 30 years performing and I still get so nervous before every gig. I guess it's because I still care about it. I treat every gig like it's Wembley. I give every gig my 100% and I get so nervous that I'm going to pick the right poems or do the right or whether I can swear or not because I don't want to get told off again. I get told off a lot. And so there's all of that. Now, I never do the same gig twice, never do the same order, never the same selection. Some poems will only live for one gig and then I'll never perform them again because they're just something I've seen in a headline in the news and I'm angry and I'll write it on the train to the gig, something like that. Or, or when I was younger, it would be because, you know, some boy had been awful, some awful lad being disrespectful or something. But I feel like I am a work in progress. I am the work in progress. 
And as I write and as I do poems, I'm constantly editing, adding, changing. Even when I have a poem in my hand, I'll edit it as I'm reading it. I ad lib, I'll add things. I'll even heckle myself in the middle of the poem because a young soft me wrote something in this really whingy way. And I'll be like, oh, come on, you know. So I don't know. I think it's that my poetry is growing and changing all the time. And also I make mistakes, like editorial mistakes, punctuation, those kind of mistakes. But then also mistakes where I might misgender or I might have got something wrong and I will always go back and correct and change and learn and grow. You're not alive if you're not learning and growing and prepared to listen and see how you can do better. And that's really important Mm. to me and to my poetry. Uh, There's a line in the poem Red where I'm making a joke about if some blokes went into a pub and it just sounded like I was saying, oh, anyway, so I changed it immediately. Just one person came up and talked to me about it and I hadn't meant it that way. But then I was like, gosh, it does sound that way. So Mm. I'm always doing that. So that's why you should come to all of my gigs because (laughs) it's never the same. Absolutely. It's a very organic (laughs) thing and the energy of a room can be so different from one night to the next. From one county to another county. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So many factors, you know, like the weather, the traffic, the state of mind people have getting into the venue. Was yeah. that a stressful experience, a relaxing experience, an exciting experience? Or if there's been like some big tragedy in the news, like Grenfell yeah. or something. I think poets are amazing. Living in such scary times, mm. scary times for so many reasons, but also yeah. the work, the books, the poets that are coming through in this time were so rich with mm. this amazing work. And I don't say that that we needed extra things to be anxious and worried and scared of to make the work good but I do feel lucky and privileged to be sharing the stage and publishing books side by side with so many heroes and legends yeah yeah it's very much the emotional discourse of the events going on where people just you know still processing the war in Ukraine and how do we deal with that you know the longer it goes on and their own personal fears with the cost of living Mm. and there's a worry on the wider humanity, but there's also a worry of the immediate family and digesting what's compassion, what's selfishness, what's survival. And I really feel it's the poets who are deconstructing that and moving that conversation on. That's the thing, that's yeah. the thing that I've always said to kids, who would win in a fight, a journalist, yeah. comedian or a poet? And it's the comedian's the slave to making it funny yeah. and the journalist's the slave to making it factual, apparently. And then the poet can use fact and comedy and heart and tenderness and all of those things. They have more in the armory, more tools, more weapons. But yeah, that is something that I say to kids when I teach them. So it must be hard when doing a collection to you have to abandon these poems now. The image in my head then was a baby at a bus stop. (laughs) (laughs) You say that the poems are constantly evolving and they're different each year performance. But when they're in a book... Yeah, they're not evolving they're not changing and people are going to read them and like you said you have that one person who reads it a certain way and speaks to you after a gig and you go oh well I'll change it yeah you can't do that once it's in a book once they're in a book and they're coming to get you to sign it and they go oh I felt this and you're like that's not what I intended but it's published now yeah so I don't know what we can do about that (laughs) I don't know what we can do about that I've had you've been doing it for 30 years Selena so I thought there might be something that you had to (laughs) make peace with the fact once it's in print yeah but if you come to a reading I'll do it how I feel that (laughs) day 
but yeah, no, I don't know what to do about it. Some people, they will say things about your work and there is nothing you can do once it's, yeah, like you said, once it's in print. It's very strange. I'm just wondering that your editors must be enormously patient with you (laughs) because I just feel like you've just signed off on it and then you've got, no, I did a gig last night, bring it back. Yeah, cancel well, the print run. I've got another new joke to put in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then yeah. there's the poems that I don't perform. Yeah. The ones I do like to just sit on the page. Mm. The ones that I never read out loud. The ones that I just want to be read. And the more sort of raucous ones, and more sort of sweary or political ones are the ones mm. that are constantly changing because we keep changing. Yeah. You know, ministers, and we keep changing <laughs> list of people that we're angry with. Yeah. So is it quite clear when a poem comes to you? Is this for a book? Is this for performance? Or is there always an instinctive, I know whether I'm going to perform this or not? Oh, that's a nice question. I don't think that I think that far ahead mm. in the sense that I write what I want to write. An example of this would be if I'm commissioned to write something. When I'm commissioned to write something, I often feel like I'm being ordered in like pizza. Okay. And sometimes when you're commissioned to do things, they'll be like, oh, change the olives to pennies. Change the olives to buttons, and you're like, yeah. I know what I'm doing here. Mm. Promise me, olives are going to be nicer than buttons. But because <laughs> they've commissioned you, you have to do right. the pizza the way they want it. So yeah. when you're writing with an audience or to a commission, then that stuff feels more squeezed into mm. a time constraint, and there's got to be a certain length. It's got to be this. It's got to, you know, you've got to sort of somehow very cleverly get your spice in there, get your yeah. flavour in there whilst also it being broadcastable for the BBC or something. <laughs> May West comes to mind when I say that. She was an absolute legend yeah. making things and then putting all these sort of meanings and politics in her work. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of innuendo with May West, which is yeah. absolutely fantastic. And when you think of the time that she was performing yeah. and what she was saying, it's just brilliant she was really big for black rights and women's rights Mm. she's quite political figure actually and yeah she's one of my favorites historical figures yeah and actually i'll say this like whether you have any rituals for performance or writing at home but just sometimes people like to have little totems on their desk or just the making of the tea is a ritual thing that they have at the beginning of a writing session you're nodding vigorously there so i'm assuming that's true with you i literally have that this is wolf's china rabbit there oh wow okay this is the rabbit that's in the book so that's still sitting here i should probably it probably doesn't need to be on my desk anymore but yeah so wolf's rabbit is still sitting there and yeah there's some little bits on my desk little witchy things little magic stones little totems Things that I can look at, little bits from my ancestors and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you'd like to have with you when you go on stage? A very strong drink. (laughs) I tend to go for a double gin and tonic or a double vodka tonic or a double rum and coke. Usually vodka tonic because vodka makes me quite energized. Rum makes me dance and gin makes me thinky. So a nice, nice drink. And then away I go. But oh, I get so nervous before gigs. Mm. I really do. So there's no real ritual. Basically, backstage before gigs, I'm just jumping up and down on the spot and going, I hate this, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it like that a lot. And what's the feeling afterwards? A combination of wanting to run away and hide, even if it's gone very well. I sort of often feel quite vulnerable, exposed, naked, and then sometimes it feels like a party. If there's lots of friends and then we'll go to a pub or a bar, 
and that's a lovely time. Yeah. We have such good times. I love that feeling. And I guess with every sort of creative person, there's that part of the process that gets the validation hit where it's just like, this is why I do what I do. And where in the process does that come for you? I think I'm really hard on myself. It's very rare for me to pat myself on the back or to give myself any sort of congratulations or any sort of rest or any kind of, yeah, that's a finished thing. Yeah, so I'm always competing with tomorrow, Selena in tomorrow. I will sit here today and look at Selena's work yesterday and be like, no, 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 and put with a big red pen. So it's very unusual for me to go, that's it, nailed it, or to feel like that's the best I can do with that moment in the book or in the poem. It's very unusual. So that's where in the process I feel some sort of validation or some sort of thing. I've given up trying to compete with anyone else. I think it's really important as writers because everyone's on their own journey yeah. and have their own obstacles and their own thing that they're trying to achieve or thing that they're trying to say that they can only say their way with mm. their pen and their voice. Only you can do your voice and your stories your way. So, yeah, so I learned that a long time ago. So I'm just constantly trying to make tomorrow the Selena in tomorrow go, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> and um, yeah, so working towards that. Yeah. When that will come and how often that comes, I can't really control. Picking up on some of the comments you made there about how hard you are on yourself. It's something I like to discuss with pretty much every writer is imposter syndrome and having that sort of feeling of, I'm going to be found out that I'm no good. And do you have any techniques to process that or just go, enough now I'm working. How do you deal with imposter syndrome? I get imposter syndrome mostly when I'm invited to do what I consider to be posh things. For example, when I was recently inducted into the Royal Society of Literature, I felt very much like they'd got the wrong person and they'd got my name mixed up in the post or something. I don't know. So things like that that feel quite posh, that's when I get raging imposter syndrome. My way of coping with it is to ask myself, what is the opposite of imposter syndrome? Surely that would be some kind of entitled syndrome or, yeah. or some kind of really horrible arrogance. And I think I'd rather feel a bit like, oh, this isn't where my comfort zone and oh, this is a bit shiny and new and funny. I'd rather feel like that than bowl in somewhere expecting everyone to give me all the cakes every day and expecting yeah. all the things and all the nice things and all the shiny things. I think these things coming along as a surprise and yeah. as a treat and as something you weren't expecting is a much nicer place to be. So just yeah. think a bit like that. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's a really lovely, lovely answer. Thank you. And I was just wondering if you ever have any periods where you feel really uninspired, where just the words aren't flowing and if that's a challenge that you have to overcome? And if so, how do you deal with that? Usually I'll go and work on something else I'm not supposed to. It's when anything feels like work, then, I'll, then I want to go back to where it's feeling playful. So I'll go and work on something else and then that will usually shift whatever's blocking it. But often when I'm, we're going back to audience and things, often the things that I get blocked or stuck on are things I've been commissioned for or favours for friends and you want you want to do them a good job and you want it to be nice for them or someone's paying you to write a poem for a thing and you want it to be good because they're paying you to do yeah. it you know and trying to pull it out of yourself to do your best job but not wanting to do a karaoke of yourself I know when I'm doing a karaoke of myself now 
Because I know when I'm writing in the style of myself as opposed right. to actually writing. Yeah. That was actually my next question was like, how do you know when to stop during a day? Because you did sort of mention earlier that sometimes when it, the feeling's good, you can just write straight through without eating or going to the loo and just very minimal breaks. But sometimes you've just got to go, it's not happening. I've got to step away. Do you have a minimum requirement on a day or is it just now you've been writing for so many years, you just have that instinctive trust in yourself that you can just tell? There's lots of answers to that too. There's the part of me that's quite obsessive and I will just keep going until Richard comes home and he will literally find me just still there going like this because I haven't gone for a peek. Um, like you'll bring me snacks until I'm until I'm just absolutely exhausted. But there are other times when you just have to switch your laptop off, go downstairs, put on some really good music, and just make something from scratch, like a really nice curry or a really nice roast dinner or a really nice you know shepherd's pie or something or bake a cake yeah. and just listen to music, have a glass of wine, and often while you're there chopping the onions or kneading dough or something, that's when the ideas start coming back again, isn't nice. it? Oh, and gardening. Yeah, yeah. putting your hands in the mud, planting nice. things. Yeah, just gardening or cooking are my two. Or organic matter. Just yeah. Having, yeah, organic <laughs> yeah, matter in the hand. I was just going to ask, I gather your husband's the first person to read things once they're finished, or do no. you have, no? Who does uh, Who does it go to once uh, you're happy with it? The first person that I normally send my work to is... Crystal Mayheen Morgan, who is my amazing agent at Own It. And I really trust her judgment and I trust her secrecy. And uh, yeah, she's normally the first one. I wouldn't let Dickie see it first because even though knowing him all these years, I still want him to be really impressed and to think I'm really clever. And if his face did so much as a shadow, because I know his face off by heart. Even if his eyebrow just slightly something or an eyelid, I'm going to study his face while he was reading it, obviously. Yeah, that would that would actually destroy it. I'd probably throw it in the bin. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous, really. Cause, yeah, yeah. It's your benchmark of quality. Yeah, That's yeah. That's nice. And, like he, stole, yeah. he stole Springfield Road, and yeah. I found him in the kitchen reading it. Like when it was still in um, editing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I found him in the kitchen reading it. But he was crying. I knew that was okay. Yeah. Oh, and going back to something you said earlier, I don't do word counts. I'm really anti having mm. word counts. You know, some people think you should do 5,000 words a day mm. or something. I count feelings. I count okay. how moved I've been. If I've made myself laugh a couple of times, I've made myself cry a couple of times, that's a good writing session. But if I haven't even giggled, it's all gone hmm, a little bit. Yeah. Then nor is the reader, as far as I'm concerned. If you're not moved in any way emotionally or made to feel some sorrow or to have a little chortle or a little giggle or to feel fury and fired up, then I don't think the reader will be either. So I think count feelings, count feelings, not words. That's great. And I think that's a perfect way to end the episode. And uh, Selena Godden, I've loved having you on as a guest. Thank you very much. And that was the real writing process of Selena Godden. Now, regular listeners may notice my last two questions are missing on this interview, and it's partly due to running out of time and partly the nightmare of connectivity problems we had throughout that interview. Thankfully, I think it's edited well enough that you didn't notice until I just told you. But yes, it's a bit shorter and some questions are missing, so I'm very, very sorry. 
However, I think what Selena makes it clear in that interview is that she really values listening as part of the creative process. Listen to different voices and be present in the world around you. Listen to many different points of view, but ultimately write for yourself. Be confident in what you want to say, the points in what you want to make, and the story in which you wish to tell. But also listen to feedback. Other people may interpret your words differently, and if the interpretation is far removed from the intention, then change it. Which is also great advice for life. Now, if you'd like to get updates on where you can see Selena live and where to buy her books, then I recommend you check out her website, selenagodden.co.uk. And I also recommend you search for some live performance clips on YouTube, because wow, she's just excellent. Oh, there's the outro music already. I guess keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near until the world is Shift and pull up the tides Never 